James 1, 18 through 27. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. We might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Tonight we're going to talk about two things, what you're doing with God's word and what it's doing with you. And that's really our points tonight in the passage that Brett just read. Okay, well, I don't need to convince you all of this. <laughs> you know better than anybody. It's possible to get a lot of information in your head. And then for mere weeks or months or even a semester later, you have no recollection of all that information that you had mastered just a little while before. We call it cramming, and the cycle usually goes study, practice it, get it inside of you so that you can recite it back and be prepared for any kind of questions you're going to get. But with a lot of it, you know, by the time the final comes around, you're having to restudy it, or after the semester's over, um, you never revisit it, and it's out on the other side of it. And again, that's the cycle. Study, practice, internalize, test, forget. But that cycle doesn't hold true across the board. There's a lot of places in your life where you don't have to memorize at all. You don't have to invest much effort at all, and you remember down to the finest little details. There are some of you in this room who can recite play-by-play play the fourth quarter of the national championship. I've heard you attempt to do it before I walked away. It's too long. There are some of you in here who can recite all the lyrics to all the songs of your favorite band. There's at least one person in here who can probably recite and identify by sight every bird native to Georgia. <laughs> yeah. Is he here tonight? <laughs> well, someone tell him I gave him a shout out. <laughs> and again, with whether it's football or lyrics or birds or whatever your little niche hobby is, you don't have to, it's not cold memorization to you. You're not cramming and that information is in your head and it's getting added to more and more. And you have a kindredness with it, like an intimacy with that information. It's personal to you. If someone said, you know, you're never allowed to make another office joke, or you're never allowed to kind of hum those lyrics again, you would feel like you were being diminished. It was taking a part of you away. You feel so close to what you know. So what explains the difference between that kind of stuff and an accounting exam? I only took one accounting class, but I'm presuming all of that leaves your head. Sorry, the few of y'all in here who are making that your livelihood. 
What's the difference? Why so effortless, such a steel trap memory, and then in one ear and out the other? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of answers. One, if, one at least has to be that experiential knowledge is tied to what you love. It's easy to remember things and internalize things and to live out of things that you love, right? Because it doesn't feel like work at all. It feels like just an effortless obsession. It's not even a conscious process. You're just kind of catching these things, picking them up. And whatever, whatever that obsession that you have that you could just kind of unload and download all the information you have about it, something happened that gave birth to that obsession or that kindredness between you and that thing. I won't rattle off but one example, but maybe you're the football trivia person and the, what gave birth to that deep, intimate knowledge of that for you uh, was maybe that's how you and your dad bonded when you were little. That was the way that you connected with him. It gave birth to what's now this pattern in your life. Well, here's the thing that James is saying in the passage that you're holding in your hand. James is saying if a person is ever going to feel a kindredness, a deep attachment, I could say even an effortless obsession with the word of God, God himself is going to have to give birth to that. He's going to have to give birth to that. So let me ask you before we go any further, just a little check-in moment. Have you ever felt anything like that? Have you ever felt any kind of a, just a personal vested interest in God's word, the gospels, the scriptures? We'll define all these terms a little bit as we go, but have you ever felt that spark, that connection? This is my story. This is relevant for me. Have you ever felt at home in the story of the gospel? Or does it feel like you're on, you know, it's an away game, you're on somebody else's turf, it's all unfamiliar, it doesn't feel that connected, does it always feel like an uphill battle of boredom? Well, James says in, in verse 18, what I'm talking about, he said, God has chosen to give us, he's talking about Christians, the past few weeks he's addressing Christians first, we'll, we'll see you, we'll talk about you, if that doesn't describe you in a few minutes, but he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, which for James and all the other writers in the New Testament, that phrase or the law of perfect liberty, it's all synonymous with the gospel. That's what they're talking about. He says God gave birth to us, to Christians, through the word, the words of the gospel, the news, the announcement, that message. Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing. In other words, faith is born through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Same phrase, the gospel. That's how this, this work of Jesus that's outside of you finds its way inside of you and generates life inside of you and brings birth, new birth. Now, if that's a, it's hard to talk about this language of, of born again or that the word has given us new birth because some of you, if you're not as familiar with the church background or whatever, you think kind of conservative subgroup or like a voting block, born again evangelical Christians. Um, and some of those bad stereotypes are well-earned. But it's the Bible's language. It's how God, the, the way the Bible talks about human beings is we are born into the world. Everyone since Adam and Eve fell born into the world spiritually dead. 
And if you, if, you, if you take him at his word that that's how you entered the world, does it now make sense why he says you must be born again? It's almost at a common sense level. Well, of course, I've got to be born again. I've got to be born a second time if I was born into the world the first time, dead to God. So what is this word of God? What's this gospel? Let's let God define it. But Paul says in, in Romans 3, It's the news that all have sinned. If you feel like you're the odd person out in this room and you were a little bit hesitant to come tonight, are they gonna judge me? Um, Everybody in this room has inside of them and in their past the things you're afraid of other people seeing. Everybody limped their way here. As some writers and theologians have said, the Bible says, I mean, here's the hard news before the good news, everybody is a moral failure. To say you're a Christian is to say, Um, I failed at the fundamental purpose of human life in existence to say I'm a moral failure. It's a very humble admission, not a triumphalistic admission, but a humble admission. So Paul says the news that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified by God's grace, which is a gift through the redemption or the buying back that Jesus accomplished. In other words, The gospel is the good news that Jesus's performance is what makes you enough. Not and never your performance. Your performance could never and would never make you enough before God. But in Jesus, God looks at you and he says, you're enough. The law looks at you and says, you measure up. The weight is off. The burden is gone. That crushing permanent audition? Is he going to like me? Is he going to love me? Has it been long enough since all that stuff in my past? Is he going to forget about it? It's all gone. He said, I saw it, and I've dealt with it, and I've separated you from it. You're free. That's good news. That message, that news is the seed. Jesus talks about in all the parables is the sower sows the seed, and it takes root and brings life. It's that word. And James is also implying that Christians, which by definition are born-again people, people who have experienced this new birth through the gospel, um, are people that have this unique attachment and connection for the word of God because it's what gave birth to you. Make sense? I would imagine none of you have been in the room when a baby has been delivered. Many of you will have that amazing experience later on in your life. And um, one of the things that they're doing these days, maybe the past five or 10 years, is um, as soon as the baby is delivered, um, the nurses, they won't go wrap them up and go take them over to, you know, the heat lamp and measure them and everything and like clean them up. They used to do that. They don't do it. They don't do that anymore. You know what they do? Immediately cut the umbilical cord and put that baby right on the chest of his or her mother, skin-to-skin contact, because they've learned that those first few hours of your life on this planet, you needed to know who delivered me into this world, who's my protector, who gave me life. It's attachment. That's when babies connect to their mothers. Those first moments... Christians born again, born anew from God's word, there's that same unique kind of connection, attachment. This gave life to me. 
God's word gave life to me. These resurrection words gave life to me. If you were here, um, you know, last spring, we, we did a little mini-series post-spring break about the character, like the, kind of the personality of God, his characteristics. One of those weeks we talked about Ezekiel 37. When I say the word of God or the gospel, remember that it's the word of God. God is life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. So when he breathes out, the words that tumble out of his mouth are inherently resurrection words and life-giving words. When he says, little girl, rise up, she rises up. When he says, Lazarus, come out, he comes out. When the prophet says over a valley of dry bones, dry bones live, they live. It's the word of God who is life. This new birth gives you a really a radical pivot in your relationship with the Bible. So I've, I've shared a little bit of my story this fall. If you've been around longer than just a month, you know a little bit more of my story. I'll be very brief, but um, I, was, I, I look back in hindsight of my life. I was raised in the church, and in hindsight, kind of the 2020 of that, um, I feel like I was a big old powder keg, and the Lord just through my parents through people who loved me really, really well growing up, just kind of poured cup after cup of gunpowder in there. And then at the end of college, right around the time I was graduating here at UGA, dropped the match in there. That was the first time I had eyes to see him as beautiful and compelling. I want you, I need you. Right over there is where he breathed new life to me. That's where I was born, in this room. When I was in third grade, at the church that I grew up at, they did this thing called confirmation. And what I remember of it basically was like a lot of like, like learning the basics of the Bible or something. And then we had a worship service one day and we all go up front and they like give you a Bible with your name on it. Between that ceremony in third grade and right after I graduated at UGA, I had probably touched that Bible a dozen times in my life in all those years. And it was kind of the, you know, the flip and point stuff of like, I'd be in a bind and need advice. So it's like flip, flip, flip. That doesn't seem relevant. One more time, flip, flip. That doesn't seem relevant. Put it back on the shelf. Well, what happened after God had changed my heart and everything got really real, really fast is uh, I couldn't, that's the Bible that I had. So that's what I went back to and I couldn't put it down. And I'm not a reader. I've never been big, a big reader. So I was like, what's going on with me? Why am I like voluntarily reading books? I had signed up for a fraternity formal. Um, I had just graduated. Most of my best friends were a year younger, so they're still students. And we were all like, our big last hurrah, the formal was in Nashville. This is gonna be kind of off the chain, amazing. We didn't take dates so we could have an even more fun time and not have to answer to anybody. And between the time I put the money down for that trip and the trip happened, Jesus changed my heart. So we go, I'm like, I don't want to, you know, bail on the boys. So we go up there and we have the big kind of banquet dinner right before the party really gets started. And after dinner, it's not, I wasn't making some big moral stand. I was just not interested in kind of the hours and hours and hours of debauchery that I normally would have been fascinated by and very much present in. And I found myself in the weirdest situation up to that point in my life. I'm sitting in the lobby of the Opryland Hotel in Nashville. And it's like, for hours and hours, just reading the Gospels all in one sitting. 
And I'm like self-consciously like, what is happening to me? I had a little red journal that I wrote in that night. I don't know what the Lord is doing in me, but something is really different. I didn't even know I was a Christian yet. I had a study abroad in Australia that summer. We spent six weeks in the outback. All that we could carry into that trip was what fit in our, our pack. I brought two books, one of which was that third grade Bible. And stuff that I'd never done in my life before was happening. I stayed up every night after we were each in our own individual tents under headlamp, underlining, highlighting every other word. It's like, why do you highlight when you highlight every sentence? I don't know, but it's a Bible I can't share anymore because you can't even read it. It got torn up. What is going on in me? Your experience might be really different. You might have been you know, became a Christian earlier on in life. You don't remember the time. I'm not projecting my experience onto you as the norm, but I'm saying, have you ever had that kind of attachment and connection, that newborn attachment to what gave life to you? A vested interest in it. This is my story, my life, my God. It's okay to ask that question if you haven't. If we're going to be the safe community that that I kind of say we are every week, we've got to be the place where you can say to a friend, I don't know if I ever have. I don't know if I've ever, I I don't know if I'm, this, where he's been going these first few minutes, I'm wondering what's going on in me. This has got to be the place you get to ask that question. This has got to be the community group that you open up and say, help. It's safe if you're in a safe community and if God is the savior of sinners. It's very dangerous if you're in a dangerous community and God couldn't care less about your confusion. So let me encourage you to engage that question if it applies to you. If you are a Christian and you know it, and you have some experience of that, you also know that I have more to the story and I could share it, the long version of you later if you want, but the the 15 years after that formal and that summer in Australia, it was an on again, off again relationship with God's word, seasons of intense interest and growth, seasons where I felt cold to it and uninterested. There was a roller coaster there, and James anticipates that that's normal, which is why he's saying early on in the life of the church. This is the first letter written to the early church. James came before the Gospels, before Paul's letters. Early on, right out of the gates of the new church, James is already looking around at his people and saying, I'm seeing a gap. You're ingesting God's word, but not digesting it. It's not getting into your bloodstream and your bones, and you're not living out of that energy. What's, he's already diagnosing a significant problem right out of the chutes of this gap between this information in my head and whether it ever gets inside of me, becomes part of me, and changes the way I live, being a hearer of the word, but not a doer, an ingester, but not a digester, so the nutrients never get to where they need to go. So what does James identify as the threats to this kind of stuff? Uh, There's some little things, and then there's one really big thing. I'd say a few tremor reasons, and then a big earthquake reason. I'm gonna be brief here, he's brief. Uh, A few tremor reasons. Verse 25, a failure to look intently, which is the root of our word intentional uh, or with a plan. Failure to look intently or continuously 
at this word. We talked about this a few weeks ago with the faux familiarity. You remember when you have an illusion of knowing someone or knowing something, and so it kills curiosity and interest? You don't ask them questions anymore. You don't really listen to them anymore because you're like, well, I don't know who you are. That can happen with the word of God too. That failure to look intently because we've lost curiosity because you think, well, I know it all. An infinite God? Infinite dimensions, infinite depth. And his word itself is alive, has a life of its own. That is fodder for infinite curiosity. Infinite curiosity and fascination there. Forgetfulness. I mean, that's obvious, right? Uh, Boy, is that easy just to forget. Uh, I struggle with this every day. Little scriptures I'll listen to at night, and just even a minute later, I'm like barely able to hang on to a word or two. It's hard. James mentions it because it's real, like a person who looks at themselves in their mirror and then goes away and forgets. That's insane, but it happens a lot, right? We can resonate with that forgetfulness. He doesn't say this, I'll say it. Information overload, right? I feel that. You sit at class all day and people do this to you, and you're like, every class you go to, they hand you a few more things to hold, and then you come here, a few more things to hold. Then you go to another Bible study or Sunday morning, a few more things to hold, and you're like, I never have time for this to get inside of me. I'm just trying to stop from dropping it all. But what's the big earthquake answer? If those are the little tremors, those are involved, but they're not the big, the big thing underneath it all. The big thing underneath it all is pride. It's a little bit hard to see because James doesn't say the word pride directly. James talks about all the symptoms of pride. He talks about the fruit of pride. He doesn't name the root of it. But when you look at all the symptoms, you're like, oh, he's describing the effects of being puffed up and proud, self-sufficient, self-content. Let's look at the symptoms really quickly, and, and you'll get what I'm saying. Um, uh, it, what's, what verse is this where James says, um, let everyone be quick, sorry, slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak. When James is saying, hey, y'all, lean this way, he's saying lean away from the things you're naturally inclined towards. A slowness to listen, a quickness to speak, a quickness to anger. A quickness to speak, chattering before God, we're projecting our opinions. This might be anything from the um, bringing your your authoritative opinions to a book that claims authority over you. Kind of putting the Bible under your authority and saying, well, I'll kind of tell you what I'll allow to be true. Uh, You feel the pride in that and the arrogance of 18, 19, 22-year-old, 41-year-old me coming to a God who had no beginning and will have no end, who breathed life into you, and saying to him, this is who you're allowed to be, but this is not. You see how that would blind you and deafen you to what he's saying? That's pretty extreme, though. Um, But everything, everything on the other side, too, to just preconceive thoughts or notions about him or about what you're reading in his word. Or maybe just kind of using his, oh no, maybe bringing your questions to him, but never letting him revise your questions or edit your questions or give you better questions. It's a quickness to speak 
and a slowness to listen. Um, It's a lack of teachability, a quickness to anger, which is rooted in an assumption that you're right and an assumption that you're in control. Boy, this was so convicting to look at this stuff. I was like, let's skip over that stuff and not talk about it. But why are we quick to anger? Because we live under an illusion that we're in control of all the variables. When something gets in the way of your control, whether it's traffic or a pedestrian comes out in front of you when you're not, when you gotta be somewhere and you're frustrated and yelling at them or whatever, somebody thwarted your ability, your illusion of control and it's immediate anger. If somebody critiques you or suggests you might need to change in this area, if there's pride, it's an immediate argument. Well, you don't understand, like, you see what I'm saying? There's a quickness, a spark to our anger because we're defending who we are or we're still defending the illusion that we are in control of all these little variables. These are the symptoms of that self-contentment that puffs us up. And it makes sense if this is our heart posture why God can't get a word in edgewise. Because there's just this internal dialogue of like, I don't really need him. Not right now. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm doing fine. Life's good. Just busyness and noise inside. So we're not even listening or we're deceived, which James says several times that we're, under, we're in control. Pride will make our hearts Teflon, impenetrable by the word of God. Good news, life-giving, nourishing words. Resurrection words from your father. Bounce right off. I was going to cite this, but there's too many citations. It's all throughout the Old Testament and the New. The Bible says God resists, actively resists the proud. Do you want God himself to resist you? Leave your pride unchecked. But he says this. He gives grace to the humble starting to wake up to your pride and realizing I'm helpless, I can't change this, Lord help. Oh, he gives grace to the humble, to the needy. If you want to be with God and if you want to see God, you have to stoop low. When my kids were younger than they are right now, they had this tiny little playhouse and they would be in this thing. They'd be like, Daddy, come play, come play. And as the new father that I was, I took them up at every invitation to go play with them. And as an old father, I'm like, eh, y'all can have fun with each other. But So I'm like down on the floor, stooping low to get in the little doorway of this thing to get in the little house with them. If I wanted to be with my children, I had to stoop low. If you want to be with God, James says you must humbly accept the word that he has planted in you. Where does this humility come from? Um, verse, let me give you the summary first. James says, God's word, God chose to give you new birth. We've talked about that. He chose. He was motivated by his character, his heart, what's inside of him, not anything inside of you. God chose to breathe life in you through his word. That humbles us. Who am I, O oh Lord? that you should pay attention to me, that you should even know my name, that you should be kind to me, my life of ignoring you, of dismissing you, and you should stoop down to be with me in love. It humbles us. 
Verse 21, God gives new growth through his word. Second part of verse 21, he gives new growth. This word can deliver you, he's saying. Deliver you from what? Deliver you from the moral filth, the pride that he was talking about before. This word can deliver you. It can create distance between you and that filth, you and those balls and chains. Also in verse 21, God gives new freedom to you through his word. The law of perfect freedom, James calls it. It liberates you progressively through your life. He can deliver you. So what humbles a Christian? God's the reason you're alive. God's the reason you know him and love him. God's the reason you cry out to him. God's the reason you're growing. God's the reason you're experiencing growth and maturation and increasing freedom. God's the reason you have a refuge when you're not experiencing those things and just no failure. Do you see how this brings us down? It gets us low, back to where the humble God is. If you wanna see, if you wanna be with my children, you have to stoop low. If you wanna be with this God, you have to stoop low. So we've talked a little bit about what we're doing with God's word, but let's end with what this word is doing with us. We've already kind of started to allude to that, but what can his implanted word do in you? What does James say? If you're looking at the page, how would you answer my question? What does James say this implanted word can do in you? Verse 18, right at the top, it can give birth to you. But he says, so that you might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. When you hear first fruits, think springtime. What God's word is producing in his people is springtime through his people, changed by his grace, grown and sustained by his grace. He's showing the world, this cold, dark, broken world, life is, in fact, returning. Little green life pokes out of branches you thought were dead. Hope is real. Change is possible. God is present. Spring is back. You are God's springtime to a world stuck in winter. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You, y'all, are the light of the world. You are springtime. You're supposed to be, I'm supposed to be the people the world looks at and says, life has returned? You're the first fruits. That's what his word is producing in you. What does it look like? Verse 19, your listening begins to mirror and look like your father's listening. A God who is slow to speak and quick to listen. That still blows my mind. Have you ever heard of any other God who listens to his people? I've heard of gods who pontificate to their people, who lecture their people, who harangue their people. Have you ever met a God who sits with a Samaritan woman, a man, and listens to a woman in a culture that never listened to women and didn't talk because he was listening to what she was saying? Have you ever met a God who already knows what you're going to pray to him but still says, tell me? Put it into words, tell me, I will hear you. A God who is slow to speak and quick to listen. 
you become slower to speak and quicker to listen. You don't kind of slap the cliche band-aid on your friend's suffering so quickly. Well, don't worry, God's gonna bring good things out of this. You sit and you tear up. And you wait to speak until your words are aimed enough to bring healing, just like your father. What else? Our tongue, uh, well, part of listening is you begin to see the Bible as a window through which to see God, not a mirror through which to do therapy with yourself. I don't want to dichotomize those two things. There is great comfort, great growth, great understanding from looking in the scriptures. You will never know yourself until you truly know God. However, are you using the Bible as a mirror to understand yourself better and better without ever realizing it's supposed to be a window through which to see what your God is really like and what he's done for you. Your tongue begins to mirror your father's tongue more and more. The words that leave his mouth and build you up and bring hope to you, now let your mouth be one that brings hope and truth to other people as well. Your compassion and your mercy and your eyesight starts to change too. Verse 27, you start to see the people that Jesus saw the most. The poor, the oppressed, the orphans, the widows, the people who had no easy escape, no amount of money that could buy their way out of their life's lot. You start to see them. You don't start, you stop, you repent of like explaining away why, well, if you'd made better life decisions, you might not be in this position, but you realize everything I got, I received. It's all a gift. What's different between me and this person? And you take up their cause as your cause. And you look more like your father who cares for the widow and the orphan and the oppressed and the poor and the heartbroken. Friends, your springtime, repeated exposures to this word of life is, is producing spring in you that the world might see. Um, I want to skip ahead and just end here, um, and then just a practical word if you don't know the Lord. Um, as I was thinking about this all day, I don't know why, but the song that was running through my head, um, and then just kind of literally I started listening to it the whole day, um, was Ben Rector's The Men Who Drive Me Places. You've heard that song? I hope you've heard it. Uh, I'm about to read the lyrics to you and it's just gonna come woefully inadequate compared to hearing him sing it. So look it up later. He's a believer and he wrote the song and uh, I think it's the most beautiful picture I could think of that shows you the fruit of this springtime that God's word is progressively producing in you this humility, this lowliness, this spotlighting other people, this prioritizing other people, this you stepping into the shadows. Listen, he's written a song about the men who literally picked him up at all the places he would go and sing, all the big venues and go drive him back to the airport or wherever else. Howard drives a minivan to the cruise ships from Fort Lauderdale, and it's been that way since 1994 does his business on a flip phone with the most obnoxious ringtone. I didn't ask, but I can tell he's from New York. He spoke proudly of his daughter and that this fall she'd be in college and that he always wished he'd gotten his degree. You can tell he came from nothing, built a future out of hustling. 
and somehow I'm the one you people pay to see. Danny showed up early, 15 minutes till 5.30, making sure that I'd be on my morning flight. He said he'd love to fix computers, but that he can't until he's fluent. So he spends his driving money taking class at night. He wore a neatly ironed dress shirt, and he helps his kids with their homework. But deep inside, I couldn't help but ask myself, why that at night I'm up on stage, everybody knows my name, while Danny's early picking up somebody else? And now everything's not given. I work hard to make a living. I'll give credit where I think the credit's due. Maybe you got, a good, got dealt a good hand too. Maybe you play it the best you can. But I don't know how far you'd walk without those cards and Howard and Danny's working shoes. But that's just the way it goes. You're dealt a good hand and you get celebrated. Oh, how am I the only one who knows? I'm half the man of the men that drive me places. This super visible celebrity that everybody knows driven by his heart to step into the shadow, to pull a Howard and a Danny into the spotlight. A celebrity who at five in the morning listens to the stories of his taxi drivers and asks them about their daughters and writes songs about them. When James says what this is pure religion, that's pure religion. That's what the gospel produces when it's ingested and digested and gets in your bloodstream and your bones. It changes the way you go about your day-to-day -day life, who you see, how you talk, how well you listen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for my friends in the room who know you, bring us back to your word of life. For my dear friends in the room who are here and have realized or already knew they don't know you, they would you just help them join all the Christians in the room in stooping down low and repenting and in, and in asking again for your mercy, for growth. Would they and us all with one voice look to you as our hope to give us birth and to give us growth. Pray this in your name.